0: The American stuff is already represented, and you're expected to know it all, and you're expected to not, you know, not even know your background exists. You know, to me, working on Nickelodeon, making a show about brown kids, that's a revolutionary act right there. Uh, the asteroid's not coming to save us. I just think that, you know, we've we got to fight the good fight.
1: Sometimes words just don't cut it, especially when you're making fun of the president. That's where Lalo Alcaraz comes in. I sat down with a Pulitzer-recognized editorial cartoonist about taking on corrupt politicians, taking heat from haters, and how working with Pixar got him accused of selling out. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in work, life, and culture. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. If you live in Los Angeles, you're pretty much a Dodger baseball fan by default. The team is famous for many things, including breaking the race barrier by signing Jackie Robinson, the first black player in Major League Baseball, in 1947. The team relocated from Brooklyn, New York, to Los Angeles in 1958 and started playing at the newly built Dodger Stadium in 1962. But the history of the stadium is a dark one. Chavez Ravine, where Dodger Stadium was built, was once home to hundreds of mostly Mexican families, The federal government declared eminent domain to buy the homes and replace them with public housing. Many families took the money, but others refused to leave, leading to a 10-year struggle for the land. But the political winds changed, and the public housing was never built. Instead, the city of Los Angeles bought the land at a drastically reduced price from the Federal Housing Authority and built Dodger Stadium instead. The displacement of people of color for allegedly public purposes is a familiar one in the United States. New evidence shows that federal highways were often built along racial divides in cities, or intentionally planned to disrupt or destroy neighborhoods populated by people of color. On top of past practices like redlining, forbidding people of color from buying homes in white neighborhoods, racial segregation kept our country divided and was another obstacle to economic mobility faced by people of color. When I go to a Dodger game, I see that most of the fans are Latino, because, well, the majority of Los Angeles and California is Latino. I wonder how many of these fans are descendants of the displaced families who once lived here. I wonder if other fans know about this history. I wonder if we mistake the word progress for racism. I wonder if it had been our own family homes, if we would think about it differently. Oh, oh. al Alcaraz has been a nationally syndicated editorial cartoonist with Andrews McMeal syndication for over 20 years. He is also the creator of the syndicated daily comic strip La Cucaracha, as seen in the LA Times and other papers nationwide. Lalo was an editorial cartoonist for the LA Weekly from 1992 to 2010. Lalo's graphic novel and cartoon books include the New York Times bestseller A Most Imperfect Union, Latino USA A Cartoon History, the 15th Anniversary Edition, Migro Mouse, Political Cartoons on Immigration, and La Cucaracha. Alcaraz is a producer and cultural consultant at Nickelodeon Animations, the Casa Grandes. He has written for Cartoon Network and Fuse TV, and was also a writer-producer on the animated TV show, Border Town* for Fox TV in 2014. Lalo was cultural consultant on the Oscar-winning Day of the Dead-themed animated Pixar film, Coco. He is also currently visual artist-in-residence for Arizona State University's School of Transborder Studies, and principal artist for the Vaccine Misinformation Combating Effort, COVID Latino, also based at ASU. Lalo is a former illustration faculty member of Otis College Fine Art and Design in Los Angeles. He is a graduate of San Diego State University and UC Berkeley. Alo, Akaraz, it's such an honor to have you here. Um, I'm a big fan of your work, and I'm really excited to talk about your art and your ideas. So thank you so much. Thanks, man.
0: You know, the bio, since I grabbed it from my Pulitzer application, it does not mention that I was a two-time Pulitzer finalist and that I just won the Her Block prize for excellence in editorial cartooning which is now the top prize for editorial cartooning I I, I get a an actual Tiffany trophy wow, uh, 15 grand tax free and a S- library of congress ceremony with uh, a bunch of heavy hitters over there so
1: oh my god I, okay. yeah that's incredible I didn't I know friend, about it.
0: <laughs> I had a friend tell me embrace it
1: you know, <laughs> be it <laughs> I mean how could you not <laughs> you low key, like, eh, that's
0: all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> no time for that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I was going to say you were a little uh, uh, humble there, not mentioning the the Pulitzer Prize finalist position. So twice, uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, We're going to get into that. That's, that's pretty exciting. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. This doesn't seem like something you say when you're a kid and somebody asks you what you want to be when you grow up. How did you get into editorial cartooning in the first place?
0: I think when you kind of come of age and kind of start seeing injustice in the world and you understand what that is, and you like the cartoon, I think that's when the that all comes together, I think you know for me, it was uh, growing up on the border, um, my parents were immigrants, they were mistreated. I was not you know not made to feel to fit in uh, anywhere. And uh, that's just the formula for, uh, you know, angry young cartoonists, you know, which turns into a <laughs> editorial cartoonist. <laughs>
1: yeah. Angry young cartoonists. I love that. It sounds dangerous. Who's, who sort of influenced your style and your subject? The
0: comics uh, of Mexico really uh, influenced me. The historietas, you know, the comic books, you know, comics are real big in Latin America because of lower literacy rates. And, and also, you know, I think Mesoamerican people, you know, we have that gene, man. We have like an extra. uh, If if you can see my my background right now, I have the you know Aztec calendar in cartoon form with my face in the middle. Yeah, Uh, and uh, I just think like we have like a really good graphic culture. You know, you can see it in I think all indigenous people do, and you can see it in bold designs and pottery and architecture. And for I think us for M- 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 Mesoamerican people in, in Mexico and Central America, they have real strong uh, graphic tradition, you know, super, super strong. Like on the level of ancient Egypt, you know, like it's just bold, beautiful. Uh, and I, I just, it's my kooky racial theory that uh, okay. I once explained to Cheech of Cheech and Chong, you know, who's a big art collector. And he just, yeah. he just looked at me, and goes, duh, you know, <laughs> no kidding.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely coming out of like the mural traditions, right? No,
0: um, yeah, for sure. That, yeah. that is definitely what, you know, that's a big current. And that's why Chicano art looks like the way it does. Uh, and uh, and then as far as, you know, people, I mean, I, I love American comics and I love Doonesbury. And uh, I love uh, a comic called Gordo, which was like uh, way back in the day, you know, kind of ran for 40 years. Gus Arriola was the first Latino, first Mexican, first Chicano to be syndicated in, in the United States and uh, had a beautiful art style. And uh, you see that when you're a kid and go like, well, maybe I can't draw like that, but it's so beautiful. But I can do a comic strip. I'm kind of funny, I think. And, you know, I can doodle and well, you know, that gives you hope, you know.
1: Um, who are some of your favorite cartoonists right now who are working some, uh, you know, some of your peers or contemporaries?
0: Wow. I mean, there's, everybody's doing such great work and, you know, like during the Trump era, people would say, wow, you, man, you must love this right now. I'm like, no, I don't <laughs> love this. I don't love the new crazy headline every two minutes. You know, that was like, that was disturbing time to live. And, uh, but um everybody rose to the challenge, you know, and, and there, there was some really big, I think are really pushing back, you know, on that kind of authoritarian trend, you know, cartoonists mm-hmm. don't like authoritarians and, uh, and vice versa. Right. All my colleagues, I mean, Rob Rogers, uh, Cal, uh, Ann Tellness, at the Washington post, Clay Jones. I mean, there's just everybody I, I know that, you know, can basically, I can, I can hang out at a bar and drink with them and and tell them, you know, what, what great cartoons they're
1: doing. And
0: that's what we we do. We sit around and tell each other how great we are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, so th- that's really interesting. So this clash of like politics and injustice and cartoons, which seems like sort of, I don't know, maybe a not so serious format um, in the context of, of the art world, maybe. Um, and so why do you use humor to address these topics?
0: Yeah, it gets dismissed. You know, to me, I mean, cartooning is, it's like a, one of the basic human urges, you know, to, to doodle a thing with your finger at the, at the beach or on a rock or something in a cave wall, right? To, to, to make your church, you know, to, to give your expressions out. It is deceptively simple, you know, it, 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 but it's really powerful at the same time. And if you read my hate mail, you would know this, because uh, <laughs> you know people are get shook when you blow out their their opinion and their argument with a with a cartoon. And I, I just fought back the urge to say with a little cartoon because people <laughs> like to diminish cartoons by saying, "Oh, you little cartoons." Uh, but I've had politicians tell me, "Oh yeah, your little cartoon that you drew me in that was real cute." You know, and I'm like, "Ah, I'm not I'm not in this to be your buddy. You know, if you screw up, that's the the first job of a cartoonist is to point it out.
1: What do you think it is about humor that helped us make sense of our world? Because, you know, yeah, yeah, I don't know.
0: Like I said, cartooning is is a, a primal art form. And so is humor, you know, a mockery, satire. That is it's super powerful. It can get as we saw this weekend on the Oscars, it can get to anybody and and make them lose their you know what. And and uh, sometimes it's all you have when you are are countering uh, a tyrant or a bully. You know, it is it's more powerful than a punch or bullet sometimes. And it, it really freaks them out. Um, and that's why they clamp down on free speech, because, you are gonna not only point out in a serious, dramatic way how messed up, you know, they are, uh, but also if you mock them, that's even worse, you know, and that's why. And I think also in in Mexican culture and, and of course, in Latin American culture, a humor is king, you know, humor is, is massive. Uh, but like the Mexican national pastime is to make fun of your terrible life, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's just a great tool for not only exposing things, you know, making a, you know, it's like a candy coating to make uh, difficult things go down. And it's also, you know, it's enjoyable. It's entertainment. It's a yeah. good, good, cheap sport.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was also thinking it's sort of like, if, if you're not laughing or crying, Sometimes too. That's right. right.
0: Better to laugh than to cry. That's that. Uh, definitely, I would rather be correct. I mean, I I think everything is funny. I, I think inappropriate things are very funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's how I cope. You know, that's how I but getting that out and just seeing the absurdities of life. Life life is, is weird. You got to cope with it by uh, to me, grapple with humor.
1: You know. I mean, I definitely feel like reputation is part of not a defense, but Kind of maybe gives you weight. Like I've been doing this for a while. I've got a lot of stuff out there. You have highs and lows, obviously. Every author does. Every creative person does. But you know, having a track record, I think, says something about you know your dedication, right? And your thought process. I think that's really important.
0: You know, look at my daily comic strip. I've drawn about you know I don't know. I think the count was like seven, eight thousand of those uh, for the daily strip, which is going for twenty years. You know. Uh, I'm not good at math, but uh, I try to tell them like I have a body of work. If you don't take my one cartoon that I did to this week serious, I've got ten thousand more that you can look at. And I think that that es una obra, you know. It is. It is uh, uh, the 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 body of work uh, uh, of a serious person, of a serious writer or artist who's committed to doing this. You know, so it reminds me of when I. Went in to uh, get my approval for my daily comic strip, you know, uh, which I developed at at, at a couple syndicates, but mainly at at Andrews where I'm at. And uh, the the editor, Lee Salem, uh, is a legendary editor in in comics uh, and was the editor of Doonesbury for years and the the Boondocks Mm. uh, comic strip. And he, you know, he looked at me in the eyes like, are you ready to do this for the next 40 years. Uh, and I said, yeah, sure. I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't he- I didn't hesitate. He's like, okay, then let's do it. You know? And, and so, so far I'm halfway there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, it seems like you draw digitally, like a, either on an iPad or some other kind of thing, as opposed to pen and paper ink you see traditionally. Um, why do you do that? What's your take on that versus, you know, um, analog? What? Yeah, I I
0: used to draw. I have stacks and stacks of originals of my comic strip of my editorials. If my didn't have my background on, you could see some of the I have some of my drawings up uh, framed. uh, Some of my classic ones, Um, and uh, it just came down to speed and volume, really, because the pace of a daily comic strip never changes. It's still a lot of it's still a lot of comics uh week to week right but uh to draw them on uh on a Cintiq tablet like I have next to me right here or iPad is a hell of a lot faster uh you can undo (laughs) (laughs) instead of erase and redraw you know you undo and draw it again and and then it it ports it right into a a file you know and everything's uh, digital that way once once you draw it so why not draw it that way I'm not a purist but people are really not buying uh, a lot of uh, that art. I think until way after I buy, I collect the Gordo stuff. There and there's these big drawings because they're from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And they use these giant cameras to to reproduce, shrink down the image, hmm. and uh, they're big, beautiful. Uh, I wish I could show you right now. They're just big, big, beautiful drawings. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't miss having to buy, you know, pads of paper and, and, and stack those things away in storage. I I have some right now. I'm trying to give it away to the Smithsonian right now,
1: actually. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. I carry like bookshelves, right. Of like, I don't know. I can carry more on my phone than I can on a bookshelf. Um, Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. Yeah.
1: And I'm sort of curious, like the relationship between the author and the creator and the audience and I'm sure you have lots of fans, but it seems like the, the people who are haters kind of stand out more for some reason. Um, how do you manage that? Like being very public about sharing your work and obviously you're publishing it in you know, newspapers and at other places. So um, what is your correspondence and dialogue like with your audience?
0: I'm lucky to have lots of fans. I've been doing it for so long. Uh, and then you know, here comes social media you know, these people have now have access to possibly get in, you know, onto your attention span. I mean, even before social media, actually, I mean, I had some stalkers and haters that threatened me and with violence and, and, and threaten other people in my life. And it's just, I mean, I've had to hide where I live and not post about my kids and, and family uh, on social media because of these crazy people. Um, and they've only gotten crazier. I mean, I think those, my original stalkers that kind of gave up, you know, like they, they, they never got me to stop. And then, but then the new generation of like activists, uh, let's call them and not call them anything else. Uh, <laughs> they, they come at me and, and I, like I said, I just would tell them like, okay, you're upset, you know, like, I try to explain my position uh, to them and they're they're not interested in hearing that they're just trying to make you feel bad because you don't agree with them. And I find that all, you know, that still happens a lot. And I become thin, I I was thin skinned about it at first and because I really did have these people threatening me, but then eh, I kind of got immune to it because there's so much (laughs) of it and it's repetitive. It's like the same old stuff. There's like have a racist retired history teacher named Larry uh, out in Riverside who uh, write, used to write me all the time every time I did a comic strip. He's like my biggest fan, right? <laughs> <laughs> more than my editors do. <laughs> sending me all this really just creepy racist you know hate mail, and uh, uh, I just you just gotta laugh, man. I'm like, Larry, get a get a hobby, man. I'm your hobby. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, man old retired racist history teachers <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe one or two of them floating around somewhere <laughs> um, <laughs> never encountered that at all um, <laughs> no. these days it seems like I don't know like extremists don't have a sense of humor to begin with and they don't what? understand irony which kind of makes a lot of sense right because irony is a f- high form of intelligence <laughs> right um, is- understanding irony um, and satire. It's complicated, but, you know, I mean, it's actually resulted in deaths. Like, remember the um, the political cartoonists in France, right? Uh, were killed yeah. by extremists. And obviously there's like, you know, as, as storytellers, we need to be mindful and ethical in our, um, in our work, but at the same yeah. time, it's like, really, you're going to that length to do that. But um, it, it's really interesting, the length that people will go to, to silence an opinion that threatens their worldview, right? Yeah, or and, questions them, right?
0: And, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I'm a supporter of various, you know, civil rights groups and uh, cartoonist rights network, and they help out cartoonists with real problems. Guys getting jailed in Asia, you know, mm. they, they pissed off the local... Dictator and uh, you know those guys. I mean, I, I would I wouldn't trade my situation you know with that. But they keep on doing it, man. They're really brave people, and I'm glad you said that thing about also our ethics because you know I got into it at a First Amendment conference I attended with a fellow cartoonist about this about the Charlie Hebdo thing, the the staff of newspaper that were murdered in in Paris, and mm-hmm. uh, you know I was the first cartoonists to come out with a cartoon against it. But of course, to quote Spider-Man <laughs> or, or Spider-Man's uh, uncle, that with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, you have to, you can't just be doing drawings of Muhammad because you know it pisses off some some extremists just because you can. I mean, that's not a responsible use of your cartooning superpowers, you know. It's not black and white. There's kind of these, you know, this, this area between those two points, but you can say, you know, it's not cool to come up on stage and slap a comedian. Uh, And, but also, uh, you know, you can, you can also suffer consequences for uh, being a jerk and saying a, a joke. It's not, you know, outside the realm of possibility, but There's a balance. There's definitely a balance.
1: I'm I'm sort of curious, like how you see words, uh, images being different than words, and how do illustrations help us make a point differently from text?
0: Words can be precise, and, and so can images. Pictures can be so economic in expressing so many things, and you and you can leave things a little open to interpretation. Although comics, you know, comics tend to be very specific. Uh, very pointed, uh, but they illustrate things that and, and and can call out emotions that you know you just can't get in text. Sometimes I I feel like you can cram in a bunch of information uh, with imagery. You'd end up making lists in text, you know, like yeah. you, to get as much information in a in a image narrative. So. I was dreaming up my, my, one of my next book ideas, you know, and visually saw a thread through the book that I hadn't realized was there. It's an idea about a school desegregation case uh, in, um, in Southern California. And I realized that it happened during the thirties and that the backdrop was everybody was getting deported, you know, Mexicans, Mexicans, American citizens were getting deported for being Mexican Mm -hmm. and that this thing, Go runs through a ton of uh, of these kind of untold stories that that we were not taught really in in history class hot topic right now right and mm-hmm. uh, and i realized oh that's my through line i don't know what the words are but i know what the images are you know mm-hmm. this is like you can literally draw this deportation thing through the whole book. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe my brain's just messed up and that's how I see everything, you know, but pictures can be so economical, but, uh, I don't know if economical is the right word. They, they can be really rich and, uh, really dense, you know, in a way that, that is a turnoff in, in writing, you know, (laughs) right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting i mean there's obviously the the cliched saying that you know pictures worth a thousand words but right. I, I don't think that does justice to it i think you know i was listening to uh the billy collins uh master class, uh the other night and billy wow. collins is a, a poet right and he said you know poets say multiple things at once and i feel like that's a great description for illustration as well yeah. there's wow. so many things that you can see and, and experience simultaneously yeah. whereas words it has to be one thing at a time
0: yeah I tease my academic friends. I have a lot of friends that are professors, and I say, you know, artists make complex things simple, and academics make simple things complex. You know, and what is the point of that? (laughs) Like, like why? Why would you want to do that? So, um, yeah, you know, we're busy, and and pictures are a great way to convey so much information. As I found right now, I'm not trying to segue or anything, but. In my anti-vaccine uh, disinformation campaign that I've been doing, the campaigns just just drawing a Latino family is just such a striking image that you don't see in publication a lot, you know. Uh, and, and and that strength of that that kind of imagery really helps to push the science, you know, and the the, the public health responsibility that we all need to take and. Uh, It's just, it couldn't be done in a a written paragraph, the poster, (laughs) imagine a poster, just like a block of text, like, no, no way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we sort of take it for granted uh, the power of the image. And yeah, I mean, you don't identify with a paragraph, but you do identify with an illustration or a photograph. That's right. Um, so uh, you're super prolific. I mean, you, first of all, you have a daily cartoon, which has got to be a ton of work uh, constantly. You're doing this um, you know, anti-disinformation campaign. You're a consultant on several TV shows and movies, like all of this going on. And, you know, um, I, I'm really curious about your creative process. Like, I feel like so many of us, myself included, think that the creative process has to come from leisure time you know like i've got to be able to like lay about and think about things for a little bit you know like have a cocktail and a cigarette and just kind of like you know in a parisian apartment and kind of like i'm like i'm cur- how are you able to maintain like your level of creative productivity with such a busy schedule
0: yeah i mean that's, ne- that's never been a problem i mean i wish <laughs> i could go chill in paris but i have too many deadlines uh, to do that and uh, yesterday and this morning i was like I want to watch a sci-fi movie on Netflix if it kills me. And I found, saw one that I had seen advertised and uh, it was pretty good. And I watched it in two chunks today and I'm like, oh, I'm uh, I'm relaxing, you know? (laughs) It took me a little while to realize, like, I'm not doing anything. I'm watching this, I'm recharging. Watching a good movie makes me, you know, think about, I really ought to do a graphic novel with striking imagery, you know, <laughs> like
1: mm-hmm. and
0: tell a cool story. And it just makes, it motivates me. So uh, even my, my rest is uh, motivating me to work. So, but I don't do a lot of it. Honestly, I'm not, I do extra try to exercise. I'm trying to fit in my suit for this award ceremony in DC for the, the, the herb block. So I'm really training art. Uh, but <laughs> so I, I work off stress that way. And, I love alcohol. Uh what can I say, you know? Uh and, uh and so uh yeah, I don't feel that kind of precious urge to go lay on the beach and contemplate life and whatever, but uh I can check out mentally in other ways, believe
1: me. Yeah, I, I it's interesting you say that cuz in season 1 of my podcast we were talking about uh creative inspiration and the need for procrastination and how procrastination isn't really procrastination because as you go through life, you have this lens, like the book idea that you've got or whatever. And everything you see is sort of filtered through that lens. You're like, oh, I can use that, or that's an inspiration for this project I'm working on. Right. But I also kind of identify I'm kind of wrapped the same way, like. People say, "Don't you ever like rest or take vacation or whatever?" And I'm like, "No time for that. <laughs> yeah, that, <means laughs> that. I've got this this passion project that I've got to work on, like this podcast." <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have any secrets to productivity, like especially being creative? Like, what's what's the trick for maintaining uh, yeah, that high yeah, level I, of creativity?
0: Wow, I wish I had a little bottle of that to uh, to sell. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I just kind of. I've never had that that problem. I've. I never. Got in uh, writer's block. It just flows. Doesn't mean they're all gems, you know. Uh, it means you got a pretty good average, you know. And uh, so, like I was, I was telling, you, I was doing a comics podcast earlier, and I said, as you know, daily comic strip has a very low threshold for humor, you know? <laughs> so yeah. I, I can bat a thousand with that very low average. <laughs> uh, but it's a fire hose for me, you know? Wow. I just, crazy. my problem is gotta buckle down and do it.
1: You identify as a Latino artist or maybe Chicano artist? I don't know Chicano what your preference artists, is. Yeah. Chicano, okay. Uh, why do you think it's important to include your heritage as part of your professional identity?
0: You know, I mean, the way I grew up I, and seen, not seeing... You know, myself represented. Uh, I had to go to Mexico to see myself represented on TV. And even then, that wasn't so hot. You know, it was like the, they got, they have uh, their own, you know, problems in uh, Mexican media, which are getting better uh, for misrepresentation uh, and, you know, Eurocentrism. I think there's so few of us breaking through into the mainstream that why not carry that flag? Not doing it to exclude anybody. I'm trying to be included. Maybe that little kid out there not really seeing like his or her life reflected. So, um, you know, why not put it out there?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I work with my students there, was was like, well, we want to show the other side too. And I'm like, yeah, the other side's already represented like in mainstream Usually. culture. Right. You know,
0: I, I tell uh, kids like you have no idea. Growing up, I learned about American pop culture, basically of the 40s, <laughs> by watching all those old uh, Warner Brother cartoons, you know, Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry and, and all that stuff taught me about Clark Gable and Gone with the Wind and all, all kinds of crazy stuff that I learned through cartoons. All that um, the American stuff is already represented. And you're expected to know it all, you know, and you're expected to not, you know, not even know your, your background exists. And I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. I do not like that.
1: I mean, why do this? What do you think we gain uh, by hearing stories created by people of color or for, uh, from other underrepresented groups?
0: Like I I've been around Hollywood for, for, I don't know, 30 years and it just started to become the same old thing. And I think everybody noticed. And I think that's why they're like, all right, on to the minorities now. You know, <laughs> it's like it was a little bit of the mm-hmm. reckoning that we're mm-hmm. going through, which you could feel it, you could see it. But when Coco, which is the film I worked on for Pixar, when uh, we were wrapped with it and it was looking like we were going to win the 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 Oscar, I mean, we had to go into the Academy and beg and demand uh, for t- for tickets you know, we didn't want the white director and the white uh, executive producer, and they were in full agreement with us. They didn't want to be the white people accepting the award for the movie, you know, and they had the co-director, which they brought on, and then the the we convinced the Academy to invite a bunch of the cast members, uh, and all of this, those stars were on stage to accept the award with them. So it was like, mm. you know, even though they weren't the principal people getting the award they represented on stage, you know, and this is only in 2018, right? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not that long ago. We're still fighting these battles. Just It's just not easy, you know, um, but, but, you know, we gained by a lots of new stories and also, you know, to spread the idea of equity, you know, and the idea that we're normal, you know, we are like you, yeah. you know, <laughs> we just, you know, look different and, you know, we we eat different food, but uh, you know, you can come eat our food. Uh, I'm interested in going to Maine and having crab apples or whatever the hell they eat over there. You know, like, <laughs>
1: lobster, is, uh, yeah, lobster,
0: yeah. So I'll go to Baja. Take a bunch of people from Maine, take them down to Baja, and see how they like uh, our our lobsters down there better. Dude.
1: Yeah.
0: So, That's but uh, yeah, you, we gain you know, more more richness, you know, and more, more stories. Like, it's an explosion, you know, that can hmm.
1: like, happen, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask you, so you were the cultural consultant on that film, Coco. Um, what was that like, you know, adjusting, correcting, verifying, you know, costume or language or traditions? Um, and you said the directors were white, the producers were white. So, I'm sort of curious what that relationship was like.
0: Well, there was this little incident, you know, that happened before where Disney tried to trademark the term "the other los mortos," yes. and so that's kind of how I got drawn into the the fray because I did a cartoon about it, and everybody in the community was very upset about this whole thing. And Disney, to their credit, you know, pulled pulled back because of the controversy. They withdrew their their trademark application. Just, I mean, on the surface, look seemed horrible uh was horrible but uh they they were really just trying to trademark it for business purposes so they could sell Dia de los Muertos Happy Meals because the the name of Coco at the time was Dia de los Muertos was the working title
1: so uh, oh,
0: okay. some lawyers just at Disney said oh, let's go for it and they really stepped in it you know <laughs> oh my god so, that's so like
1: trademarking he, halloween or yeah, christmas like, right what
0: monica hello you know <laughs> You know, but a year after, as the, the movie continued to be developed, uh, Marcella and aviles who was the, the main consultant for the film, said, you know what? I think I need to bring in more people, and I think we should bring in Lalo. Uh, the executive producer was like, yes, let's do it. Uh, Darla Anderson, uh, who told me later, like, uh, Disney didn't know that I hired you until after the movie was over <laughs> so it was a gamble you know like it could have backfired on them it could have backfired on me I I was called many names uh, you know I was accused of selling out and uh and I was accused of misrepresenting culture this this fell into my lap for a reason you know I think like I was just at the junction of of the Hollywood and the the reckoning the first sign was that, trademark application. That was a big red flag. And I think they, that woke them up to say, you know, we really got to bend over backwards and even bring in this idiot, Lalo Alcaraz, to help us out. And I'm sure at first it was like to, to blunt criticism. And, and, but I told them, I, I'm not here to rubber stamp your stuff, you know. And uh, they said, no, of course not. You know, That that's cool. I'm, and I'm like, I'm not down with uh, brown facing either. You better not have Arnold Schwarzenegger playing you know, Diego Rivera or
1: something. And they're
0: like, no, absolutely not. We're not doing that either. There's
1: Austrian accent. That would be perfect. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Come here, Frida. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so there's not really any aspect of the film, of the marketing, of the merchandising uh, that we didn't advise on. We advise on everything you can think of. Now, as I work on Casa Grande as part of my job, uh, the show on Nickelodeon, is to sit in on every re- recording and, uh, you know, give notes and, and prompt or rewrite stuff or uh, be language coach, you know, <laughs> for pronunciations uh, wow. if, we, if we speak Spanish, if the characters speak Spanish or Spanglish. But we were involved in giving notes on, on anything you can think of. We even went to the testing uh, of the, the film, the first uh, audience test, which was in Tempe. They had never taken consultants to a, a testing because the somebody said, "Well, what if the, the reaction is terrible? We're gonna have to fire them on the spot. You know? <laughs> it's gonna be awkward seeing them at the hotel bar." <laughs> but luckily, it it rated the highest. It, it you know, it was just incredibly high ratings. The Latinos were besides themselves. Somebody said it like, "You guys did everything right in this movie." You know, like as if like. It was never, ever going to happen in the history of Hollywood, but here mm. it is. Mm-hmm. We, we had this movie that has everything and was done right and was written correctly. And of course, you know, Pixar does their homework. You know, they don't mess around. And so they, they had already done great research and they had gotten as many Latinos from within Pixar to gravitate to the project. Uh, they had Latinos in the writer, writer's room, in the story room. And uh, it was completely different at, at first. And we, I like to say we, we're the, the, the tip of the spear, you know, and you know, we, we, we helped sharpen the spears. They had a pretty good stick, you know, and we just re- <laughs> refined it to the point where it's, it's pretty close to perfect.
1: Hey, I want to get back to the, this idea of political cartooning for a minute. Um, and oh yeah,
0: about political cartoonists. Yeah, that. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, no. So um, I don't know, like, I feel like, These days, everybody is like so entrenched in their beliefs that nobody changes their position because their position on politics or culture is so tied to their identity and they're wrapped up in that. And if you contradict that, it's like a personal insult. Yeah. And so this idea of like, I guess that's what you know, political cartooning is supposed to do, right? It's sort of supposed to jog your mind or maybe have you think differently about something. Um, And I think there's a lot of preaching to the choir sometimes in that. And how do you even know that your work is making a difference?
0: You know, that's a good question because, you know, I'm pack rat. I have all my old cartoons from back in the day. And I will pick up a cartoon about, you know, violence at the border. And it, I could have drawn it yesterday, you know. I could draw it tomorrow and it would be the same. And it's a kind of a disheartening feeling like, well, I didn't do anything to solve the problem <laughs> of violence at the border. You know, some problems are just going to be with us. Uh, inequality, you know, I've got cartoons on, you know, military overspending that I drew about Ronald Reagan in <laughs> 1985 when I was in college. Mm. And it's basically the same thing going on now. And, uh, but I don't know, sometimes I get to meet people that tell me, you know what, you you showed me how to speak on this subject with your cartoon sometimes. And that's a little victory, I think, you know, that. Someone that maybe wasn't paying attention to politics, maybe now is, and can see things my way. You don't have to, but, and at least they're getting more involved. So that's a little victory I take, but yeah, it's not cool to see old cartoons that are <laughs> ripped from today's headlines. It's like, wow, what are we doing here? You know, are we spinning our wheels or what?
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah. It feels sometimes like you're yelling to the void, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: So might as well draw for the choir.
1: yeah so when i work with my students i teach high school students and it's really hard for them to wrap their head around this idea of telling stories that might ruffle feathers or piss people off you know so even my journalism students right like you're supposed to investigate and report the facts and that pisses people off because they don't like to hear bad news or that they're doing something wrong or someone's responsible for something they should be doing differently Um, and I, and I think that's kind of bizarre because for me, I've always been a contrarian. I've always been somebody who enjoys pissing people off. (laughs) I mean, that explains my large friend group, but, um, uh, you know, I think that there's something important to contribute in conversations in our society. Um, but what advice would you give to folks who, you know, are maybe worried about that? Like maybe they have something they have to say that might, you know, make people feel awkward or upset. Um, and they're afraid about the backlash. What advice would you give to them?
0: Don't repress yourself, you know, like I I, I do my cartoons or, uh, you know, feel like therapy to me sometimes because I have so much inside. You know, I hate the, you know, trendy language, you know, I have messed up things that happened to me when I was a kid. And, and I'm, now I'm going to spew them out, you know, and I'm not going to call it trauma or self-care or any of that <laughs> buzzwords. <laughs> it's just it's some basic elemental stuff of why people make art, you know. You can't censor yourself, you know, Let because other people will try. And uh, my advice is don't listen to them. You, you may have to listen to them eventually, but listen to yourself first and get it out there. Not really any laws against it. <laughs> and they, they, they encourage you. <laughs>
1: um, it's interesting. Cause like the world that we're living in is, is pretty wild and uh, can be really hard to have hope, you know? Um And it was interesting because the other day I was reading an article in The Atlantic uh, and they quoted a Korean-American author, uh, Crystal Hannah Kim. And uh, she said that working on art means believing in a future where it can exist. It's hope and a bit of defiance too. The insistence that art matters, even though the world events right now are so disheartening. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, that's super gloomy, man. (laughs) (laughs) I like the defiance part of that. I mean, I think... You know, I think, you know, civilization is going to go on, sadly. Uh, the asteroid's not coming to save us. <laughs> so uh, I, I just think that, you know, we we got to fight the good fight. Uh, and if art is part of that fight, it doesn't have to be political. I mean, it could be, you know, to me, working on Nickelodeon, making a show about brown kids, that's a revolutionary act right there. It's just framed differently. But, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't have made that show. And now uh, we get to sneak in all kinds of cool, funny stuff from our family stories. These characters are going to live for a long time. When people complain on my comic strip, they're like, you know, that story you did about is two weeks old, the, the the joke you did. And I'm like, dude, give me, you know, give me a break. I have 10 day lead in to I got to draw these now, turn them in. They come out in 10 days. So you got to kind of be a psychic, or, or to figure out what's going to be happening, or write a joke in a certain way. But I also tell them I I, do, I write my stuff for the ages. You know, I write to record what we're going through now, uh, so that someone in the future can see, can go back and look, and be like, "Wow, damn, boy, we're me- we're still messed up," you know, or <laughs> whatever. Mm. Uh, I I guess that is optimistic in a way. So damn it, you made me optimistic.
1: <laughs> or that author did. That uh, author did. <laughs> uh, I wish I had said that. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> hey, so you've got a lot of projects uh, going on. What are you working on right now that you're excited about? Oh man,
0: I got I got a live action show that I cannot talk about, but we're about to go pitch in a couple weeks. Uh, that sh- somebody should buy. It is is it it is an irreverent show, and that's all I can say. And it's, it's kind of a Latino show, but it's kind of not. So that's kind of cool. I got some animation stuff uh, in the works that uh, I just signed a deal, you know, to develop a project, which shall remain nameless, and I <laughs> uh, got a year for that. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about these, uh, you know, doing a lot of this public health work and we're going to be, we're doing a lot more animation. People, they, they like it, you know, and ad agencies are calling us PR agencies are calling us uh, and they want this, the Lalo sauce. (laughs) So I'm excited about all of it. And I want to do some books this year. So, and it's the 20th anniversary of my comic strip. So, there's going to be a certain amount of celebration. And uh, so uh, I'm working on a a collection of, of the La Cucaracha strip uh, hopefully for uh, come out in the fall. And, you know, I'm speaking at the Charles Schultz museum in, in the fall. I'm speaking to the national, at the national cartoonist society uh, convention in uh, Kansas city where my syndicate's at. And just, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting the pats on the back for the, for the, the little comic strip that could, you know.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Congratulations. Oh,
0: thank you. Man. Sounds
1: really exciting. Hey, where can people connect with you and find out more about
0: your work? Sure. They can go to laloalcaraz.com or go to my humor website, bocho.com. Just just Google me. Be lazy. Google me. And, and so I could be la- lazy and stop dropping URLs to you. Just Google <laughs> me. You'll find I'm on all social media. Uh, sadly, you know, so, uh, I, I pump out my cartoons, uh, all to social media and to my syndicate and, and daily codes. Sometimes I'll even put them on LinkedIn just to piss people off, just to make myself completely unhirable. You know?
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like it's working for you. So keep doing it. <laughs> Oh man, well, yeah. Akabaz, this is an amazing conversation. Uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of your work and I'm so honored that you uh, came on the show today. So thank oh, you so sure. much. I'm glad we could uh, get it together. You can see more of Lalo's work and links to his website and social media accounts on our website, changethenarrative.net. Change the Narrative is written and produced by me, Michael Hernandez. If you like the podcast, rate us and write a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. You can find details on our website, changethenarrative.net.